Fall Brawl 95 took place in Asheville, North Carolina. There were 6,600 people in attendance. 5100 paid for a gate of $72,000 with a 0.48 buy rate, which is 113,000 buys, making $1.21 million total. Matt, we have arrived. Although if people have listened to last Monday's show, yes, these are being released on Monday because we're us. We're not starting with Starcade 83. We're starting with Fall Brawl 95. I'm glad to go to Fall Brawl 95. I have a lot of things to say about this particular pay-per-view. There are things, some background with this one, but Matt, you have to let the audience know because this was your idea. Why are we starting here, sir? So, here's the pulling back the curtain. I'm going to break kayfabe in and of itself right now. We had talked ever since I've known you about doing this show in whatever format we chose to do. We wanted to do wrestling. And we said, okay, step one. Step two, what do we do? Do we do weekly shows? Do we do retrospectives? Because that's our movie format. So we agreed on that. Then it was, where do we start? Because we could start as far back as when television was invented. But neither of us were around, and I wanted to choose an era to begin when a lot of people had eyes on the product. And based on that logic, you would think Starcade 1983 would be the place to start. But we wanted to include more to kind of include some breaks here and there to not just do straight WCW, not just do straight WWF. So I thought about doing the Monday Night Wars because it was the hottest period in wrestling. Both of us have history with this particular era and were able to alternate companies while also giving a retrospective of both things to come and also some stuff that had happened before this point just to emphasize this pay-per-view that we're going to be talking about. So that's kind of how we ended up with where we are and hopefully people enjoy this because i think this is as indicated when not just one company was hot professional wrestling in general was as popular as it's ever been professional wrestling is going to get there it's going to get there in about six months but i wanted to start with this particular one because here's how this we're going to really pull back the curtain now the way this came up was last week i had mentioned to you guys i was watching the monday night wars documentary that's on the peacock network and you piped up with Dude, when are we going to fucking start that shit already? <laughs> and you're like, and if we start it, I want to start there because that's the era I most remember. And it really lit a match under me. And I was really like, oh my god, yes, let's get this going. Now, for those who listened last week, I also mentioned that I watch wrestling while I edit podcasts. Poor Jen has to hear it every single weekend I'm home and I'm editing. I have it on in the front room as I'm, as I'm putting these, these movie podcasts together. And so right now, like I started like back in the mid 80s, early 80s, actually. And now I'm up to 1996. I'm right up to actually, no, I just started 97. I'm right up to Royal Rumble 97. I mean, that's how much how many hours I spent editing these damn shows. And I was thinking like, okay, well, this would be perfect because this particular era, like you said, it had a lot of eyes on it. It was an era that defined wrestling and I want to start with Fall Brawl 95 because Nitro has started literally two weeks before this particular pay-per-view. And that was the official start of the Monday Night Wars. And what's exciting about doing this, Matt, is we're going to see this war escalate as we go through. 
yeah, where we're starting is not the boom period necessarily. This was the Nitro airing was the first shot across the balcony of legitimate competition. Now, WCW slash NWA had been around, but anytime you get a network television deal, you are able to take that next step into legitimate competitive weekly ratings. Now, we weren't going to review every Nitro and every Raw because that would just take up too much time, but... Being as we are, we had to start at the closest to the beginning as we could, which is why we chose Fall Brawl 95, because it was the first pay-per-view that they did after they went on TV on Mondays. And we're releasing these shows on Mondays because that's when Raw and Nitro were competing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No Thursday shows. I'm not. We're not doing Thunder. I'm telling you right now. Because by the time <laughs> you get, once you get to the later days of WCW Thunder, it's almost unwatchable. Oh, boy, I'm not looking forward to that. As people who watched last week know, I I kind of tuned out of WCW around '99 or so. Yeah, that that that's basically our approach, and these shows are going to be labeled, you know, Monday Night Wars because I, you know, this is the era. Like we decided instead of going pay per view by pay per view and going through the weeds, shall we say, the way we do movies, we're still doing that format. But what we're deciding to do is we're going by era, and I thought that was a brilliant idea by Matt. I. I I I was wanting to go, you know, chronologically all the way through, and Matt was like, no, we can't do that. And I said, okay, how about we do 180s, 190s, or 190s, 1-2000s? And, and you were like, no, like, you have to do it by era, because I think eras define this. Now, you grew up with this era. I grew up with the Hogan Rock, rock and Wrestling era, which we're going to cover next, but, of course, Goudreau wanted to start with the one that has the most pay-per-views on it. <laughs> Well, I also wanted to, for the record, do the era where the, it was the only time where both of us were watching in some capacity. Mm. Yeah. I was not alive during the first boom period, and you were outright not watching around the aughts on. Yeah, two thousand summer 2004 on was when I tuned out. Yeah, I was definitely watching around this time. I, I As I mentioned last week, I had a friend who we would watch these all of these pay-per-views. And, of course, once we met Adam... It was amazing because we were able to get these without having to pay a dime. So we watched all of these in the order. And, and that's another thing we're going to do too, Matt, is you know we are still going chronologically. We're going to go do this, and then very, next week we're going to do In Your House 3, which that was the very, what was that, a week later actually was when that pay-per-view came on. And so, like, we're still going chronologically, and we're going to fill in gaps as we go. I mean, obviously, you start with In Your House 3, with my crazy mind, I'm thinking, oh, so when are we going to do 1 and 2? We are going to do those eventually, but we want to get through these eras, and we're going to do specials for Patreon, which, yes, we are still launching a Patreon as soon as we can, folks. Things have been pretty crazy lately. And so maybe we'll do individual episodes of Nitro and Raw on Patreon. That's an idea that we've thrown around. But nonetheless, Matt, we have finally reached our dream where we are reviewing wrestling in our own format. And boy, am I excited to go through. As we finally got this going and as you were like, okay, let's start with the Monday Night Wars era. I'm thinking, fuck, yes. And I pulled out my pen and paper and I took a shit ton of notes. And the way we're going to do these are we're going to talk up the matches. And like we said last week, we're not going to do star ratings for matches or we're not going to give a grade for each match. We're not even going to do our 10 out of 10 
our 1 through 10 rating for each individual match. What we're going to do is we're going to talk about each match, and at the very end we're going to give a rating for the entire event because Matt had a great point last week where he said you can't do those, you can't do star ratings for each match because each event is its own thing, and there are so many one-match events that, and I think we have one here, by the way. <laughs> so many one-match events that you can't do that as a rating of the entire event. Is that isn't that true? Isn't that kind of what you said? More or less, and and more importantly, everyone and their mother does individual star match ratings. I don't want to follow that trend because we're not breaking new ground on the internet, but we are sort of in uncharted territory for what you and I have been doing. Uh, this is the first time we've done wrestling in a full format without any strings attached you know it's sort of our you know it's our attitude era where we can say whatever we want without any repercussions uh which is really exciting but yeah we're gonna give overall thoughts on the show and i'm gonna do since we're doing one show for each company around the same time i'll say which had the better show that month Um, oh perfect because i'm gonna i'm gonna keep a war scorecard as we go through this oh that's that's nice you didn't even mention that to me when we were formatting this thing. At the very end of these shows, too, we're going to give our favorite match of the pay-per-view, and then we're going to mention our least favorite match, and then give an overall 1 out of 10 rating for the overall pay-per-view. So that is the setup. Boy, we're, we are going without a paddle here, sir. Are you, uh, are you ready to get going with our, uh, with our very first match here? I'm about as ready as we're ever going to be, but this is uh, not quite the era where WCW was firing on all cylinders. It's kind of a weird... 1995, for both companies, is a weird outlier Mm. for where the business was and where it was going to go. So, looking at WCW, we'll talk about where WWF was around this time. Hogan had come in in the middle of 94, and... The first shot they got to do Hogan and Flair on a big pay-per-view, they did. Because they knew Hogan is where the money was going to be. They were proven right. How little did they know what degree that was going to go next year. Because basically what they were doing around this time was the template that Vince and Hogan did for business throughout the rock and wrestling. Where it was Hogan as your top babyface fighting the monster of the week. And this was the era of the Dungeon of Doom. <laughs> I, which, uh, I was going to save it, but go ahead. <laughs> so, if, if there was a Hall of Fame for crap in wrestling, it, it would probably be the Dungeon of Doom for me, because I think with professional wrestling, there is always that absurdity component to it. In the 80s, that was a huge part of wrestling, was the larger-than-life stuff. And we were not yet at the period where things became a little bit more real, the lines between, you know, what was good and what was bad. You you had to be one side or the other. And because of that, WCW was still doing a lot of holdover stuff that you would have seen in the 80s. And the Dungeon of Doom is kind of the pinnacle, because, as I mentioned, believability plays a big role. And someone who never convinced me they were a genuine, like, monster was Kevin Sullivan. Or organizing this whole Dungeon of Doom. I'm like, you're this little midget from Boston. Uh, and you're trying to sell me as a viewer that you're going to destroy Hulkamania. Let's, and the... Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say that he was 
looked at as kind of an innovator in the mid-80s, because that was around the time he had met Nancy, a.k.a. Woman, rest in peace. And he had this whole devil gimmick that really took that area of wrestling by storm. I believe it was Florida was where he was booking all this stuff. And uh, him and Dusty, Dusty Rhodes, got along very well. They were really good friends. And Sullivan was able to take the book around that time and really get that area talking about not the WWF, but his stuff. And so if you watch that stuff, you know, I, I watched, I just watched, in fact, I just showed Jen the uh, Chris Benoit documentary on the Dark Side of the Ring. And they talk a lot about where Woman was coming from around that time. And it's it's pretty good stuff, man. I mean, he, he really did have a scary aura about him. But once he got to WCW, you're absolutely right. Him next to Hogan is like, I mean, there's, there's just no match, you know. And Hogan, I'm going to say right now, I listen to a lot of wrestling podcasts. And I'm going to bring a lot of that stuff that they say on those podcasts, give or take, to this podcast and kind of mention it. And one of the podcasts I listen to is Kevin Sullivan's. He has one called Taskmaster Talk. And he mentioned that he knew Hogan way back when, even before he became famous. He saw him, he saw him on the beach. Like, he was playing in a band around that time, Hogan was. And him and Hogan became friends around that time. So he knew Hogan a long time. And by the time Dungeon and Doom roamed around, he had the book. He was head booker. Dusty Rhodes had it for a while in the early mid '90s, and then Flair had it, and his fuck, his attention span was all over the place, and he kind of got rid of it because he was trying to make his friends happy while holding certain other people down. <clears throat> Nick Foley. Um, <laughs> and after Flair left, Kevin Sullivan took the book. Now Kevin Sullivan had to take it and make Hogan happy. How do you make Hulk Hogan happy? You feed him monsters. You make him beat big monsters and give him people he's comfortable with. And Hogan was very comfortable working with the Dungeon of Doom and Kevin Sullivan because Kevin Sullivan would bring friends like Brutus Beefcake and Earthquake and Kamala, all these guys in to feed Hogan just like the 80s era because that's what Hogan was comfortable with. And they had talked about turning Hogan heel for so long because... Within a year of him being in that organization, people were booing him. There's a Nitro yeah. around this era, Matt. I don't know if you watched it. It took, takes place in Chicago. There are audible Hogan sucks chants in that crowd. Well, it's not surprising when you look at, you know, the WCW audience was much more rooted yeah. in traditional wrestling because that's what the NWA, that was their backbone. And they, they did it for the money, but you also have to look at when Hogan was on his way out of the WWF, there was eight years of Hulkamania. And but towards the end of it, people were cheering guys like Sid and Undertaker mm-hmm. over Hogan. They they were sick of him. So to bring that same thing to an audience that's already resistant to him, then you're magnifying it with guys like Haku, Brutus Beefcake. They're not on Hogan's level, which makes this main event just so absurd when you look at one team and what that's composed of versus the other team. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's just it. But here's what bringing Hogan in did. Bringing Hogan in gave it credibility. It's like when the Salkinds were trying to put Superman together. You know, we talked about it earlier this year on the Three Men podcast. By bringing Marlon Brando in, people were like, oh, shit, they must be credible. They must be doing something right. Hogan was the thing that made WCW look like the competitor. For so long, they just kind of lingered around losing money every year. But Hogan was the one who they were able to go to NAFTA conventions and th- their tables were filled because 
Hogan brought the audience. Say what you will about the man, and God knows, I'm going to be on this podcast talking highly of him enough, because like I said last week, I'm, I, I've been a Hulkamaniac since I was eight years old, and, it has, and that hasn't changed. The credibility is what Hogan brought, but at the same time, you got to write storylines around him, not to mention he had creative control, so you had to keep him happy. How he got that contract, I, I have no idea. It has to have been part of the arrangement to come over. Mm-hmm. Uh, considering that, you know, even if he stayed with Vince and was still getting that reaction, I still think he would have been able to throw his weight around. Because as we'll see, the big thing is that even though the steroid trial was on the tips of everyone's tongues on the other side, all the guys in this match, you know, Hogan, uh, Luger, some people thought Savage was on steroids, Mm -hmm. you know, they're fighting this team of monsters. It's still, it was not as much of a hard turn as the other company would try around the same time frame. Not that they'd stick with it, which we'll, I'll definitely have words about on next week's show. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it's just an, it's an interesting transitional period for this company where they were still, they prided themselves on wrestling, you know, cause you still have your flares and your stings, but you have freaking, we'll talk about Colonel Pittman and some of these other characters in the show. Yeah. So the one thing I do like about this time, was they had it was Shivani and Heenan exclusively mm-hmm. commentary. There wasn't a third person added yet because I think the two of them worked really well together. And there were some when they put in a third person later on. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't, and it was a good counteract to what the WWF was doing, which we'll talk about next week in their booth. I am a mark for Dusty Rhodes commentary. We're going to see a lot of Dusty Rhodes in this next year or so. We're covering this era. And, man, you know what? I am all for Dusty Rhodes being the third guy. <laughs> the other third yeah, guy. Um, his influence is on this show because the whole War Games concept yeah, was his. Yeah, let, let's talk about that. Let's talk about War Games. How much into War Games are you? Have you seen the original War Games? Are you aware of what exactly it was before 1995 rolled around? <laughs> Well, I don't like Matthew Broderick to begin with. Oh, oh not that <laughs> one. I'm sorry. We're not doing movies. Yeah, so I think this is, in a in an industry that is filled with great gimmick matches, this is pretty close to the top as far as, like, the coolest idea with the multiple rings and the two cages. It was sort of their answer to Survivor Series. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, Dusty Rhodes was watching Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, yeah. and that is how he got... I could picture Dusty Rhodes in a movie theater just saying... My son, I've seen that Mel Gibson kick someone's ass, and I thought, Mr. Flair, Mr. Turner, we are going to kick Vince's ass by doing the double cages. Like, like he, he's one of the most imitatable people, but obviously around this time, he couldn't really do much in the ring, so he was almost behind the scenes now. Whereas Ric Flair said, you giant pansy. <laughs> yeah, this was a Dusty Rhodes idea. It was perfect, like... Reading those tapes in the 80s of the Horsemen and the Superpowers, as Dusty Rhodes' team was called, were me and my buddy, we would watch them over and over. Like, those matches are just intense, great, great matches. And, you know, as the concept got older, they had one other one that is actually pretty classic. And it's one that people, when people say war games, they think of even before they think of the 87 original. And that would be the 1992 war games. 
which had the Dangerous Alliance led by Pauly Dangerously against Sting Squadron led by Sting. And that whole fucking match, I mean, everybody bled like a stuffed pig in that fucking match. And it's a brutal, brutal, very good match. That was the other big highlight. And then, like, the next year in 93, like, once they stopped doing the blood, and we're going to definitely see that and talk about it in this card, but, man, once they stopped that blood, I was like, dude, I'm out. Like, there's no danger in this anymore. There's no, like... It's not, it's not to settle the score, it's to get a buy rate, and that's when it started pissing me off. Yeah, well, they kind of, with, with television comes standards and practices. Mm-hmm. So I think that the aversion to blood was something that per- perpetuated both companies. You know, it wasn't just, a, a, you know, because the year before you had Bret Hart and Owen Hart in a blood feud yeah. at SummerSlam, and there was no blood in that cage match. Mm-hmm. So... You know, it was it was par for the course. And I'm not saying that blood automatically makes a match better, because in that case, CZW would be the greatest uh, <laughs> industry in the history of professional wrestling. But uh, I, I just, I think this show, and we're going to get into it, you know, you, you sort of mentioned it's a one-match show, and I think that match happens surprisingly early. Wow. Interesting. Let's talk about it then. Let's talk about the first match we get. It is a WCW US Championship number one contenders match between Fly and Brian and Johnny B. Bad. And if you're a watcher of WCW in, your, in the mid 90s, Johnny B. Bad opened all of them. <laughs> Every single pay per view was opened by a Johnny B. Bad match. He would later be Mark Merrill. Vince McMahon would pick him up later. And I believe McMahon would have thought that, you know what, I want this Johnny B. Bad character, but. He couldn't have the, he couldn't have that character. He got stuck with Mark Merrow, and we saw how that went. But I am yeah. one who really likes the Johnny B. Bad character. Yeah, because he had to use his real name yeah. when he went over. It's like the opposite of Scott Hall. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Kevin Nash to make him over. Mm-hmm. I think guys like Johnny B. Bad were sort of the they were the precursor to what the cruiserweights were gonna be with WCW when the wars really hit that next year, where it's you know they got the they got the shows going on a good note. And they were sort of the backbone to provide consistent in-ring work at a time where a lot of matches in the upper card were not done by the most athletic of people. And yeah, I think his WCW run was considerably better than his WWF run, although he did meet his... He married Sable when he went to WWF. Yeah, his selling skills were great because he ended up with Sable for a while. Yeah, and this was before Brian Pillman really before his addictions really started to take mm-hmm. hold. And you really see how good of a performer he was in this match. Yeah. Uh, Flying Brian was an appropriate nickname. I loved Flying Brian growing up. They really touted him in the late 80s as as the future. And Ric Flair was high on him when they hired him. He was really looked at as the future of wrestling. And I saw matches with him and Luger that were great. Um, he wore the Cincinnati Bengal tights, you know. He was just this guy that you really rooted for. And then that character kind of went away, and he kind of turned into this character. I'm not going to say I didn't like the loose cannon, quote-unquote, gimmick that he took up later on in his career. But I prefer the early underdog Flying Brian. I, I would tend to agree, also because they, they booked him better. Mm-hmm. And he, he, Pelman was one of those guys, he's, he's just a natural babyface because of his in-ring style. I think it's very hard for people that are pretty acrobatic and more of a you know high-flying style. I think it's a lot harder for them to be heels because your natural instinct is to cheer for them when they do some really cool stuff. Yeah. But they, they do a good job in this match because it was sold as 
two faces. And then Pillman would start to, you know, as the match went on, he'd start to do some more heel work, like he bit his head in part of this match. I forgot Michael Buffer did the introduction, yeah. which is funny. They also, they bill it as a, it's a, you know it's a number one contenders match, but it's not outright billed as one. Yeah. Which is weird. Yeah, and the legend behind this match is interesting because, and Bischoff shoots this down on his podcast. He, as soon as Conrad Thompson, the host of that podcast, starts talking about this, Bischoff was already like, no, no, that's not true. But supposedly, these guys were getting a lot of attention on the pay-per-views, and they were always having the highlights of the highlight of the show. Like they were always had the matches that stood out. So what the Bookers challenged them with was, we're going to put you in a match that's a half hour long and see if you can do it without syncing up the joint. Bischoff shoots that down. I don't know if I believe that. There's a lot of politicking in WCW, which we'll talk about. But, Matt, that sounds a little far-fetched for me. I think it does, because both of these guys had a good track record up to this point. So I don't understand why you would put the proverbial handcuffs on them or or the pressure cooker. Because, you know, Pillman, him and Austin were a great tag team. And, you know, Johnny B. Bad was a multiple-time television champion, you know, he was sort of a good person in that spot. Because I I think what's good about this era of wrestling that's often maligned because it's not, it's sandwiched between the two biggest eras in the history of the industry, is that everyone had a place. You could be over and be good in your spot without having to be shoehorned into a main event scene. Like you didn't have to be a world champion to be an important part of your of your company, and I think that's what this showed here. Especially when you look at some of the crap we're going to talk about in the next thirty minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, this, if this match was not on this show, it'd be much harder to get through. So Pillman takes control early, looking for some quick roll-ups in between applying some wear-down holds, and Bad is actually bleeding from the eyebrow hard way. And this again, like you said, standards and practices. There were a lot of faraway shots in this match because they didn't want to show that Bad was bleeding and ask Dustin Rhodes how that goes in WCW. <laughs> you know. But Bad, he comes back with a headlock takedown. What do you think about this, Matt? We're seeing this match, two high flyers. We're starting off with a lot of groundwork, so we know that this match is going to go a little bit, don't we? Yeah, it's it's good because, you know, they're starting off with some rest holds, you know, there's some chin locks, and there's that spot where, you know, he hits the backbreaker. Oh, and goes yeah. The, and he goes into the Boston Crab. There's a lot of a lot of good transition stuff in this match. For the most part, on a psychological level, it's really well told up to a point. Because there is there is a part where my logic brain kicks in and says, wait a second, it should not be happening this way. But I like how it escalates where Pillman gets more and more desperate as the match goes on. Yeah, tempers are starting to flare as they exchange shoves. And, and I love Heenan in, this, in these types of matches because he's always like, okay, somebody hit him. Like, somebody <laughs> break the rules. Him and Ventura were always great at, when they came to the faces facing each other. Like, he was just always rooting for one of them to just punch him in the mouth. This is setting the tone for the second third of the match. Pillman's acting more heelish, and the fans are really r- rallying behind Bad at this point. Both men go down after a crossbody collision, and then we get a Pillman headbutt. Uh, Bad risks a, D- risk a DQ with a reverse suplex off the apron, and then he gets a springboard crossbody. At this point, Matt, we're closing in on the 20-minute time limit. They're exchanging urgent near falls. Pillman's looking for a submission victory as the one-minute warning is announced. Bad rebounds with a lariat. But Pillman scores a springboard clothesline. The time limit expires at this point. And then referee Nick Patrick orders a sudden death overtime. To which I say, isn't every match sudden death? <laughs> yeah, that, 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 that's the, 
where my brain sort of kicks in, but also, why are you applying rest holds in the final two minutes? I know, I know. There's Uh, one minute left, and you put a fucking chin lock on. I, I was, I I had that note too. But uh, it's so weird seeing Nick Patrick call matches down the middle because we're going to talk about him a lot when we get to the NWO. Mm -hmm. But it's so funny that like you know we'll see this exact thing on a larger scale in the other company about six months from now. Absolutely, yeah. So in the overtime, the Ma- Pillman's aggressively pummeling Bad in the corner. They brawl ringside, and Bad gets driven into a barricade. Back in the ring, a double drop kick spot leaves them both down and out. And then the match restarts with Pillman working a sleeper rather effectively. Bad struggles, but Pillman counters his sleeper with a belly-to-back suplex, which is a beautiful spot, by the way. Oh, Pillman was so good, man. When he was on, he was really on. Yeah. And this is where, you know, the sudden death, feel mm-hmm. really starts to amp up because they're they're doing a whole lot of near falls yeah uh, for, for this last part which is good but also i guess it was different because wcw typically it was a time limit draw like the match yeah. just wouldn't so i like that they're you know kind of breaking precedent bad's blocking a superplex and almost wins with a sunset flip i love that flying sunset flip he used to do pillman nails a reverse hurricanrana for a two count crucifix slam by johnny b bag it's another two count as does a top rope hurricanrana. Like, they're pulling out all the stops here. This match oh, yeah. is, is 30 minutes long. You know, it's, it's officially it's 29-15. But, man, like, they are still going full speed at this point, <laughs> which is why you do those rest holds in the beginning, right, Matt? Yeah, you got to save your energy. Mm-hmm. And you also don't want to burn the audience too quick. Correct. Pillman nails a tornado DDT, another beautiful spot, but gets press slammed off the top rope and into the barricade. God, he used to fly into that barricade off that top rope all the time. I cringe every time he does it. Well, that was his equivalent of when Flair does the flip on the turnbuckle. Yeah, yeah, or when uh, Bret Hart went chest first into the turnbuckle. Yeah. Uh, Johnny B. Bad, he falls with a somersault senton to the floor, but Pillman counters the senton with his knees, which was brutal looking. Pillman doesn't quite connect with the suicide dive, and then a good portion of the crowd, now the crowd's really into it. You know, they were kind of on their hands in the beginning as they're doing all these rest holds, but by the end here, they're really into it. They run the ropes and hit a, have a nasty double bo- crossbody collision, but Bad is the lucky man of this match because he lands on Pillman for the pinfall at 29-15. Great match. These guys really, really busted their asses, and uh, they told a great story. I love this match. You? Oh, yeah, this is by far the match of the night. You know, my only minor quibble is just putting submissions with the expiration date, you know, as time running out. But as far as opening a show, you know, this is the template that they would run with for the next couple of years. And also, like, matches like this, you didn't see a whole lot in WCW at this time. Yeah. Question for you, because you watch modern wrestling a lot, hell of a lot more than I do. Do they do rest holds anymore or no? Yeah. Okay. The, not as intensive as they used to be. Okay. We get a, a great promo here setting up a match later on with uh, Mean Gene Okerlund and Ric Flair. Flair's saying he has to face his best friend. He's really putting over their, their bond. And uh, tonight they're going to fight in horseman country. Uh, you know, Flair gets to the point where he gets annoying for me. You know, he goes way over the top and he'll do the little kuracha and then grab woman's hand and kiss it and get, get on his knees and all that shit. Like, he'll go absolutely nuts in promos here. He's kind of reserved and it's a... It's really setting this up really well, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, and, they, and you know, they're in Flair's home territory, basically, yeah. North Carolina. Um, and it was a match booked. I think there were two heels at the time. Yeah. 
which, you know, because the opening match was two faces, and this is your semi-main event where you have two heels going at it, but they're going to get cheered just because it's in flair country. Exactly. All right. <laughs> so our next match. Cobra versus Sergeant Greg Pittman. Because <laughs> that's what you want to follow that last match with. Yeah, and this, you know, Cobra, even, despite what his theme music would lead you to believe... <laughs> He's not a marine. He's like a he's like a secret agent. Oh my god! What I love about this too is when he comes out to this Morse code bullshit. Like you're thinking he's gonna be dominating in this match. This match goes 121, and it's because Pittman swats him off and does like a this cross arm breaker that was his finisher at one minute 21 seconds. And this is after he ascends from he descends from the fucking ceiling. By the way, this is just WCW at its craptacular best. Oh God! And this is the the the, the bad like because if you remember, this is like when Kevin Nash was Oz in the early nineties. Yeah, where it's like, we promise you things will get better, but sometimes you're stuck with crappy characters because Cobra would eventually be the NWO Sting, mm-hmm. and you know Craig Pittman, you got fucking Prince Ikea <laughs> in in army wear distracting Cobra <laughs> when Pittman comes down Sting style. Uh, he chokes him with a belt, which should be a DQ to begin with. Because uh, the one thing about WCW, much more than WWF, they enforced rules. Yeah. Which is so ironic once you get to the late 90s and into 2000, where the rules just don't matter. It's just a brawl. He puts him in the armbar and wins. Like, it's such a... Uh, this is a dud with a capital B. Absolutely. <laughs> Moving on. So, we get another backstage segment here with Paul, Mr. Wonderful Orndorff. Now, Paul Orndorff was a guy who... My God, like... I was scared he would kill Hulk Hogan in their feud back in the mid-80s. Here he's having an existential crisis, and he's being joined by Gary Spivey, and he's cheering Paul Orndorff up by sharing a psychic vision of his future success. We're having lots of close-ups of Paul Orndorff here, as he's just like, I don't know if I can do it. But Spivey, he's telling Orndorff to look in the mirror and see Mr. Wonderful, and... This is just what Paul Orndorff needs as he resumes kissing his own reflection. Oh, boy. Not only was this... So, I don't know what's worse, the acting in this segment or Spivey's hair. (laughs) The helmet hair? Yeah, a really bad helmet head. And this was both at the time bad and also went nowhere because Orndorff retired, like, not too long after this because he took a bad injury and that that was it. Well, his, his injury actually first occurred like way back in his feud with Hogan actually and he just never really got surgery on it and he had bad nerve damage in his in his arm if you notice him in his later career one of his arms I can't remember which one is right or left is much bigger than his than his other one I thought he just masturbated a lot (laughs) it was pretty bad for him and you know he did remain with WCW he became a road agent and he was with them throughout their entire run, actually. So Bischoff did give him a career. You know, I mean, Bischoff and him are, were really good friends up until the very end. Unfortunately, he lost Paul Orndorff earlier this year. But it was, a, it was a relationship that, you know, Bischoff was really happy with. And, you know, if Paul Orndorff wanted to retire, I mean, later on, he would have a dust-up with the horsemen that pretty much put him out of action later on this year. So, But this, just to kind of put this in, with, in the middle of this pay-per-view is just odd. Yeah, especially because neither of them were involved in the actual card. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, I could see if maybe he showed up like later on, but yeah, I mean, it's just here just to kind of remind us, oh, Paul Orndorff's still here. 
Yeah, speaking of useless, let's talk about the Renegade. All right, so next match, U.S. Television Championship, the Renegade with Jimmy Hart versus Diamond Dallas Page with the Diamond Doll and Max Muscle. Oh, boy. See, this match makes me sad because one on one end we have re- one of wrestling's biggest success stories, right? I mean, here's a guy, Page. He fought so hard throughout his entire career, and he worked himself out in the power plant trying to get better and better took all the advice of everyone around him including scott hall kevin nash who he remained friends with but he took everything people advised him with and he turned himself into probably the biggest performer of the late 90s in wcw and then you have the renegade who this is a guy i just feel sad for this is a guy who was brought in because they could not get the ultimate warrior for a huge event that was, I believe it was Spring Stampede, maybe Slamboree, one of those, where it was the quote-unquote ultimate surprise, Matt. Ultimate surprise. And he's shown in steam, and nobody can really get a beat on who he was, who he is. He was going to be called Renegade Warrior, but guess who put the kibosh on that? <laughs> and he's brought in, and he's given this television championship. But at this time, he's had it for three months. He's getting booed out of the building. Nobody cares. After this match, he kind of lingers around. He fails a steroid test in 1996. And then the very next year, he's 33 years old. He gets in a fight with his girlfriend, and he kills himself. Tragic, tragic, wrestling-oriented story. But this match here, what I love about this match is we're really... You mentioned last week, Matt, that you love seeing stars as they grow in front of people's eyes, right? We're really seeing Paige grow at this point. But at this point, Paige is... He's got the gimmicks, right? He's got all the rings on his fingers. He's got the diamond doll. He's got max muscle. He's got neon on his tights. He's got the cigar out of his mouth. Like, it seems like he's really grasping at straws here, doesn't it? He was still putting the pieces together as far as... And the important thing about DDP is that he never... When he start when he really became a star, you know, in the the year to two years after this, it was sort of like The Rock, where he just organically became a face, not because they wrote him that way. Mm-hmm. Um, like there was no official turn; he was just people cheered him because he was, you know, he, he has a good look. Um, you're right; he's an unmitigated success story because he start he broke into it late. He was a manager before he mm-hmm. ever got in the ring, and here it's sort of the. The comparison I would use is when Austin finally shed the ringmaster gimmick and morphed into Stone Cold, but before he started feuding with Bret Hart. The the pieces are there. You can see the talent. He was married to Kimberly at the time. Of course, they'd be together for years. But he was tied to the stupid gimmick where he had $13 million because he was winning arm wrestling yeah. competitions. Yeah, and then Kimberly ends up... I think that was a dig at DiBiase. You know, instead of the million-dollar man, we have the $13 million man because they keep saying he has $13 million on commentary. I know, I know. And it ends up being that Kimberly ends up... It, it, she wins it in a bingo game or something. Like, they turn it into a really ridiculous story. And that's what I mean by the gimmicks here. Like, he's kind of... He's grasping at straws to become something in a business that he loves, but just a few years earlier, he was about, he was running a club. He was running, I, I believe, a bar or a strip club or something. Um, he ran a nightclub in Fort Myers. Yeah. And it was known for like having a pink Cadillac in the front of it. Yeah, the one from WrestleMania 6 that he had with the Honky Tonk Man when he was in WrestleMania, yeah, when he came down from WrestleMania 6. Well, so as far as this match goes, you know, yeah. it's basically, you know, Renegade is a cross between the Warrior and a Samoan because he no-sells the headbutt. <laughs> 
Yeah, so let's get to this. So Renegade charges with his crazy warrior entrance, and DDP just kind of ambush, ambushes him when his back is turned. Renegade's rebounding, and DDP, he's fleeing into the crowd, only to get dragged back to the ring. Renegade's starting to dominate a bit, but DDP, he ducks a crossbody and goes after the head and neck. Diamond Doll, meanwhile, she's just here to hold up a 10 card, while DDP flaunts his own greatness. Page, he counters a sunset flip, but Renegade counters back as they exchange near falls. Renegade's making a comeback that the crowd really could care less about. Again, at this point, the crowd is just not on Renegade's side. Yeah, well, he's the kind of character that people, that audience, just didn't respond to. Yeah. DDP, uh, he survives a double axe handle and nails a chin breaker. Great move, by the way. That one really stood out. And then a big DDT by Page. He's getting some time here. Renegade, he rips Page into Max Muscle and takes him down with a flying shoulder block. But Max, he grabs the leg, allowing DDP to hit the diamond cutter for the win at 8 minutes and 7 seconds like 20 minutes (laughs) it really did this match really dragged but again we're seeing the makings of a star here and for that i would recommend people kind of check this out individually just to kind of see where he would eventually where page would eventually become but he is the television champion here so he's at least cleared that hurdle he has a championship yep that that's step one for a lot of these and you know this is at a time where the 90s, it was nice to have only, like, four belts yeah, for promotion. you're not wrong. I like nowadays where there's, like, 15 yeah. fucking titles, so they don't matter. Mm. But, you know, this is showing that they're doing what WCW would get accused of not doing when it counted, and that's setting the seeds for future stars. Yep. All right, our next match. WCW Tag Team Championship. We got Bunkhouse Buck and Dirty Dick Slater. Why are they on the pay-per-view? I don't know. Versus Harlem Heat. How are they the tag champions? That's a better question. <laughs> Versus Harlem's Heat with Sister Sherry. Sherry Martell. Sensational Sherry. Somebody I just always love Sherry. She just always brings some kind of fire. And Shawn Michaels always credits her, too, as being really somebody who was a catalyst to making him who he eventually become. So here we have Dirty Dick Slater. He's against... Booker T, which is just a mismatch, and Harlem Heat, they're isolating him early. Bunkhouse Buck, he tags in only to find himself stuck in enemy enemy territory as well. We get a lot of rest holds. Booker T, he leapfrogs Buck and nails a hip toss. Slater gets a hot tag and unleashes a flurry on Stevie Ray, including a swinging neck breaker. Harlem Heat, they turn it around with some choking. And then Slater and Buck, they end up back in control, isolating Booker T. Slater almost kills Booker T with a pile driver. Oh, God, where he, he power slammed him on his neck. That was crazy, yeah. That was a crazy spot. Yeah, and, and up to this point, though, this is your standard tag match where it's, you know, get the heat on one guy, a bunch of rest holds. Although, I think deep down, even the, the, the commentators knew it was bad because yeah. they were about Buck's attire. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And, and, like, Shivani plugs the hotline. I know. I know. But the problem with this match, Matt, oh, there's a lot of problems. But a big problem with it, there's no heat on it. Like, no, there's no backstory here. These guys are just here, and the crowd could really give a shit less. Well, and the managers were a bigger story. Well, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, let's get... You know, they were above the the tag title. Yeah, let's get to that. So, Stevie Ray, he finally gets the hot tag, and plows through Buck and Slater. The match breaks down while Sherry and Colonel Parker, they make it out to the second ring. And then, all of a sudden, where are these guys coming from? Speaking of Hogan and Fred. Yeah! 
the nasty boys come running in. They attack Buck and Slater, and this allows Harlem Heat to capture the titles at 16 minutes and 46 seconds. Holy shit. Boy, and then like you said, this is basically for the story of Colonel Robert Parker and Sherry. A cute story, but it got way too much fucking airtime. Oh, God. Yeah, th- this went about five minutes longer than it should have. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Harlem Heat's a great tag team, but it wasn't until, you know, the mid to late 90s, you know, before Booker broke off that they actually consistently had good matches. Probably because they, they got stuck with a lot of crap. And this is a prime example. All right. So after two pretty disastrous matches, let's get to what many consider to be the main event of this card. We get Arn Anderson. He's giving a promo about Flair as we are looking at the history backstory clip of him and Flair and Arn Anderson. He's responding. Just a tremendous promo from Arn Anderson. And in fact, he said later on that after the, this is the only match that he has ever thrown up before. Because right after this interview with me and Gene Oakland, he went to a garbage can and just threw up in the garbage can because he was so nervous. Great feud. I do love, there's a line that Heenan has in this match that's great. It's like, it's like watching the Clintons fight. <laughs> oh, well, boy, would that take out a whole new meeting in a couple of years? <laughs> yeah, you're not kidding. All right, so this is actually getting a lot of play because we're seeing Fly and Brian just fought a 30-minute match, what, an hour ago, hour and a half ago? And here he is in the crowd. Gee, I wonder if he's going to come back into this ring. Well, they also show, like, Eddie Guerrero's in the yeah, crowd. Yeah, Eddie Guerrero's there. He wrestled, he wrestled one of the dark matches. Uh, they show the American Males. American Males are there, yeah. I like, you know, it gives it, though, that big fight type of feel. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I think that, that helps. It's unfortunate that, in hindsight, this probably should have been the main event. It certainly would have made more sense for for the WCW audience. But when you look at the star power in the main event, it's kind of justified, mm-hmm. at least on one side. So Anderson and Flair, they start off by trading some holds, and Arn's getting the best of the exchange. We get another lockup leading to Arn slapping Flair right across the face. I always love when Flair gets slapped here. Flair's stalling for a while, but Anderson goes after the arm. And this is a big trademark of Anderson's. You know, if you go back to his quote-unquote brothers, Gene and Ole, his storyline brothers, they would always go after the arm, and that's exactly what Anderson's doing here. There's a technical wrestling clinic going on here, Matt, as Ric Flair, he's throwing some big-time chops, and Anderson recovers. He drives a knee right off the top rope into the back of Flair's head. Hammerlock slam, which is a move I've always loved. I love when they put the arm behind the back and slam it. And then uh, Arn Anderson's going back to the arm, unfazed by Ric Flair's chops. I mean, what are you feeling at this point? We're about the midpoint part of this match. These two have never really have never been in a match like this. Uh, I don't think they've even fought ever uh, before this match. Are, are you feeling the emotion here? Yeah, I'm feeling the vibe even without all the, the preamble that preceded it. Because I don't, my memory's pretty foggy, and quite frankly, I don't have the time to watch all the the stuff that leads up to these pay-per-views. But it's good storytelling, especially with the commentators talking about how Flair's an eleven-time champion and he never gave him, never gave Anderson a shot at the title. Yeah, really good storytelling here. And, you know, worked in the arm totally makes sense. Although he should be working the leg, <laughs> uh, you, would think. you would think so. Flair's tricking Anderson into flinging himself over the ropes, setting up the flying axe handle. And then Flair's in the driver's seat. He's wearing Anderson down. And then Arn Anderson, he brawls his way back and nails a back body drop. Tremendous move. Flair loved taking these right on his side. If you notice, every time he takes one of those back body drops, he's always landing on his side. Did he ever have, have hip replacement surgery? According to his, uh, his son-in-law, he 
really, like, he took these throughout his entire career and hasn't really had an issue with his hips or anything since. Yeah, I, I think all the alcohol he had well, that's in his system. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All the, all the, like, his liver became so hardened that it acted as, like, a, um, like a cast any time he took a bump anywhere but his face. Well, don't forget, he also had that airplane crash in, what, 74, 75, something like that? Yeah. So, and then Flair, he does what WCW would become just famous for around this time is the, the low blow to gain his, regain control. Arn Anderson manages another backdrop on the floor. But Flair's bouncing back with a suplex. Flair's unable to get a pinfall and misses a wild punch. Arn Anderson makes a com- another comeback, setting Flair in a tree of woe to dish out some punishment. I always love when Arn Anderson would do this. Flair blocks the DDT, but gets routinely tossed over the top rope. Flair's struggling, but he manages to apply the figure four. Flair's spitting at Arn Anderson, which inspires Anderson to reverse the hold. And at this point, Matt, the crowd is really into this match. Oh yeah, they're they're standing up, you know. There's they're uh, pretty ruckus, but this is like the first time where I remember someone like actually holding Flair's leg to defend against the figure four. Because mm-hmm. it's always the dumb thing. I've never understood the spot in the years I've been watching wrestling where just because you flip over in the figure four, the pain goes to the opposite person. <laughs> it's storyline. Yeah. <laughs> Never made any fucking sense. Either, <laughs> wait, what the hell is this? Flair's trying to get the finish, but here comes Flying Brian to hop on the apron and trade some punches with him. At Dace Flair, he stumbles into Anderson's DDT for the pin at 22 minutes and 47 seconds. Oh boy, Arn Anderson with the victory. What are you thinking? So, you know, Arn Anderson for being a a tag team specialist with Tully Blanchard, you know, they were the brain busters for the long lives of time. He more than holds his own, and this is probably one of the best singles matches you'll ever see him have. The, the finish in a vacuum, it's kind of, it's kind of disappointing, but it does provide an entry point for a possible rematch. But as far as like good wrestling, it's got good psychology. The selling is good. There, there's a reason to care. I think a lot of this still works really well. And honestly, in an era nowadays, 30 years later, I don't know how many people would respond to this because it's not, you know, high spots and, you know, finishers constantly. Like, it, it feels like this is 50 years ago, not just almost 30 at this point. I love this match as well. I find this match to be tremendous. I think the story it's telling is really emotional. And when I say I think it's a one-match pay-per-view, I'm kind of spoiling the end of this podcast, but this is the match I'm thinking of. All right. (laughs) It's time to get ready for the main event, Matt. (laughs) Yeah, and how do we do that with a uh, classic Hulk Hogan, you know, amped up promo in in the back? Amped up promo. It belongs in the late 80s. Hogan really wants to bring that fire back to the mid-90s WCW, but even as a Hulkamaniac myself, Matt, in the mid-90s at this point, I was like, can we do something else? Yeah, to call this uh, been there, done that is an understatement. Well, and then we're having like footage of the giant running Hulk Hogan's fucking motorcycle down in a monster truck, and so we're setting that up for the next month. Yeah, because we got to foreshadow the Halloween Havoc. we got to foreshadow the Halloween Havoc, exactly. And, you know, and we're, we're saying that his shirt smells like Andre, which was a really weird fucking thing. Like, this is, we're trying to pump him up as being Andre's son, which Paul White said later that he really hated. But Hogan, this was Hogan's idea. Like, Hogan wanted everything that made him successful back in the 80s. He's trying to bring back here. 
it just doesn't work, man. And again, I say that as a Hulkamaniac. Yeah, and again, it makes the other three guys, Sting, Macho Man, and Luger, who was a last-minute replacement for Vader yeah. initially, it makes them feel just like B players, even though Sting is a former world champion at WCW. All of them know. are former world champions. Yeah, I mean, look, L- L- Luger sucks. I'm sorry. I've never liked Lex Luger. Really? Oh, we'll fight then. I'm a Luger fan. Yeah, I, I think the guy has the charisma of a kumquat. <laughs> And Macho Man has always been just under Hogan. Like, Hogan always did his best to make sure he was 1A. But but the, the stipulate, like, the big prize for this match is that Hogan gets five minutes in the ring with Kevin Sullivan. Like, it's not it's not about a title. It's not about, you know, pride. It's just, I want to beat up the, the, the little weasel. But, but th- this is... The weirdest thing is that Hogan says, don't trust anybody. D- you know, DTA. Austin would use that a year later. Yeah. What do you think about this this promo, Matt? We're, we're we're seeing Hogan, Luger, Savage, and Sting. They're all in camouflage. They have military face paint. Uh, and Hogan's like saying that they've all drank Agent Orange and have declared war on the Dungeon of Doom. <sighs> uh, this is a relic of the eighties yeah. that just brought back. Because um, even like towards the end of Hogan's WWF run, like I think of WrestleMania nine with his giant black eye, his promos there weren't as coked up as they are here. Like, this might as well be an Ultimate Warrior promo between all the face paint and yelling. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I gotta say, though, you're not a fan of Luger, but the only part of this I really like is the Lex Luger factor, because Luger was a surprise that spring the first episode of Nitro. People know that his contract in WWF had run out, and nobody knew. So, here's Bischoff to snatch him up. He didn't even want him. Like, Sting was the one who was like, look, give this guy a chance. And Bischoff is like, okay, I'll give him a chance. And he, out of nowhere, is like, okay, Luger, I'll bring you in for $100,000, thinking Luger's never going to take that amount of money. Luger takes that amount, $100,000, to come in. And (laughs) I, I love what they do with him here because we know that he can't be trusted, but he's trying to assure everybody Sting's the only one who trusts him. And I think that's a pretty good story. Yeah, it's a good story. I just wish it was a better person to pull it off. Yeah, um, good point. Uh, and I always thought Luger, I mean, it was obvious Vince wanted him to be Hogan 2.0, and it failed spectacularly. Mm-hmm. So it, it's kind of unfortunate he has to come back here with his, to a certain point, tail between his legs. But luckily he was able to recover. But it's just, you look at these guys, you got four former world yeah. champions <laughs> against... All right, all right, let's go. So Buffer's introducing the war games. And I always like the slow lowering of the cage. Like, this is always a big part of war games for me. Like, we're really building the suspense up here. And we're starting off with Zodiac, a.k.a. Brutus Beefcake, in one of his many, many gimmicks. Ming, who is Haku from the 80s WWF. Shark, who is John Tenta, a.k.a. the former Earthquake from the WWF. And Kamala, you're right. Four world champions against those guys. Yeah, like it's it, it's not a comparison whatsoever. And this was when Kamala was past his prime. Haku still had a lot of good stuff left because he would, you know, him and Barbarian would be a great tag yeah, team. Yeah. Wrote Brutus Beefcake has gotten. He is to Hulk Hogan what David Goyer is to DC. He's like a parasite who's only who's only popular because he left he hooked his wagon to the right to the right thing. You are not kidding. Oh my God. 
Yeah. Just the previous year, he main evented Starcade with Hogan. I mean, god damn this guy. <laughs> it's just, and, and, you know, Hogan and Earthquake did their program in WWF. I think they made it, they had one of the big matches on SummerSlam mm-hmm. one of those years. Yeah. Because, like, he broke his back or something. Mm-hmm. Well, he got his face smashed. Oh, that's right. I, I, I couldn't remember exactly what the storyline was, but the dumbest thing in this match, if Bobby Keaton even points it out, why is the guy with the worst cardio starting out the match? I thought of that, too. <laughs> I have that note. Before I even heard Heenan say it, I'm like, why is John Tensas starting this fucking thing off? And what I love yeah, about this, too, is we, we talk about the contrast between eras and whatnot. Here we're talking about going to war and all that. Hogan's going to war with the Dungeon of Doom. The very next year, going to war in WCW will mean a whole other thing. You know, It's just kind of fun to think yeah. about that. Yeah, and ha- right away, you know this match is going to suck because they start off with a, bear, a long bear hug. Yeah. I'm like, oh, here we go. Yeah, let, let's talk about the war game. So here's the rules pretty much, and this is, again, a dusty concept. We got two men who start in the cage for five minutes, and then there's a coin toss. <laughs> and in all the times they've done this match, the good guys have never won the goddamn coin toss. There must be must be a two-headed coin for the heels. And then two minutes thereafter, a new guy will walk in, and when they're all in, the only way to win is to make someone on the other end say, I quit. Shivani, on his podcast, has said that he hates this concept. Part of the drama of wrestling is seeing that three-count hit, no matter how loud the crowd is. Here, you have to rely on the referee to say, he quit. We're not seeing the actual action itself. And you know what? When he started talking about that, I was like, I was kind of against it. But the more I thought about it, I was like, you know what? He's kind of right. What do you think about that? I think it depends on context. You know, when you look at, in storyline, the only time I think like submission matches where you only win by making the other guy tap work is when there's a vested believability because both guys have finishers that would make you tap out. Uh, The only guy who has that here... I guess there's two, because Luger had the torture rack, Sting has the death lock. Mm-hmm. But that works really well in a one-on-one concept. When you have eight guys in a match, yeah. and, you know, everyone's having to do different spots, you know, because once everyone gets involved, you know, it's up to eight. It, it's really hard, and unless you're paying attention very closely, you could very well miss it. Now, fortunately, they did a good job of, like, not making it impossible to see the finish, but Shivani makes a, a perfectly valid point. You know, it would... TNA, when they did Lethal Lockdown, it was like their war games, those matches could end by pinfall. Okay. So I, I think he's got a point, definitely, if it was pin or submission, uh, it would it would be a little bit easier to, to manage. So we get Earthquake, as you mentioned, the least, <laughs> the least cardio man of this match, starting off against Sting, and after they beat on each other for a bit, five minutes is up, and then we have Zodiac, he comes in. And then Savage, then Kamala, and then Luger. And this is when Luger and Savage, they start, kind of start going at it, teasing a little bit of a heel turn from Luger. Ming comes in, then Hogan. And then Hogan and Luger, they're kind of teasing a bit of going at it. But they start taking everybody out, and Hogan throws Zodiac into the cage and puts him in. Are you ready? The Camel Clutch. Because <laughs> Hogan's so well-renowned for the Camel Clutch. Yeah, and before this, like, fucking, I also love how 
even in the late end of his WWF run, Hogan's offensive repertoire included heel tactics like eye pokes and back rakes, which he would bring to WCW, even though he's supposed to be a babyface, to the point where even Bobby Heaton calls him out on this bullshit. <laughs> and how do you know Luger got in the match? He hit clotheslines and he yelled. <laughs> oh, I love his fucking, I love his selling. When he's like, oh, oh, I love it. It makes me laugh so much. He takes a sweet-ass time to get in the ring while Kamala and Earthquake just wait for him to get in the ring. (laughs) They don't try to jump him. The only part I like in this is when Luger accidentally hits Savage. Yeah. Savage kind of flies off the handle temporarily. That's how, you know, Meng's able to get some heat on the baby faces. But having Hogan win the match by submission... That came out of nowhere. Like, this has to be the only match Hogan has won by submission that didn't involve some kind of, like, screw job finish. <laughs> and it's by the guy, it's by a move, it, by a guy who he faced to win his first title. So maybe it was some kind of weird callback or something. I don't know, but, yeah, it's very odd. Yeah. And, and you know, as far as the match goes, uh, this might be the worst War Games match they've ever oh, done. Oh, by far. Um, horribly put together. You know, the, the way that the, the heels look pathetic throughout this entire they thing. They do, yeah. And nobody was surprised. But it's not over yet. No, but Hogan's winning with a camel clutch at 1842 is how long this match went, which was an eternity. But yeah, you're right. We're not over yet. And basically what this pay-per-view seems like, and this happened the previous year too. You know, we're going to talk about 94 Fall Brawl soon, but they were hyping Halloween Havoc back then too where we're hyping Hogan and Flair in their retirement match in the cage. They ended up getting that match going right at the end of the, right in the middle of that pay-per-view. Here, we're setting up Hogan and Giant. Now, the Giant is somebody I don't even they saw him at a charity basketball game of all things. And Hogan was like, "Yes, we need to bring him in." And you know what? I got to say, you know, Hogan gets 5 minutes with Kevin Sullivan, but when all this is going on, the crowd could really give le- care less. But the only time they care is when the, Paul White comes in and he's hopping the top rope, which back in 1995, you didn't see 200-pound guys doing that, let alone a fucking 450-pound dude. Yeah, this was... You look at the giant from 95, his WCW run. One of the most athletic big men you will ever see. Yeah. He could do drop kicks. He could, you know, hop over the rope. It was rumored he could do moonsaults. Yeah. Uh, but they wouldn't let him do it. And of all the guys, like, you know, your King Kong Bundys and your Giant Gonzalez's, he may have hated the storyline, but he felt like the real successor to Andre. He did. In a way that nobody else really did outside of, like, Yokozuna or Vader. But they didn't really wrestle that, that style, you know. Those guys were much more athletic than Andre ever was, and the same could be said for the Giant. Mm-hmm. But there's no better way to get a guy over than him like doing what he's about to do here. Yeah, he does the Zeus thing, right? You were setting up no holds barred. I was wondering if you would get that reference. Yeah, he twists his head like Zeus did, did to Hogan, which was the only move Tiny Tim Lister knew, bless his heart, rest in peace. But yeah, Paul White's here, and the Giant is twisting Hogan's neck, and that is how we are ending with the baby faces all around Hogan trying to uh, get him to uh, recover from this, which is kind of a downtrodden way of ending this pay-per-view. We're not having Hogan must pose at the end here, are we? 
And they clearly don't like Hogan because none of them try to fight off the giant. <laughs> Watch Man's like, let him go. All right, Matt. Well, that's our final match. Scale of 1 to 10, what do you give Fall Brawl 95? Boy, this is a hard show to decide a score on yeah. because you've got, you got two really good matches and a bunch of shit. <laughs> and, I, and I sort of... In the same way that I judge like a Royal Rumble pay-per-view based on how well the actual Royal Rumble match is done, I have to judge Fall Brawls to a certain degree based on how War Games is integrated. And oh boy, it's about as bad as you can do. Uh, it's like Billy Madison. Every What you just did is one of the most insensibly idiotic things I've ever seen. So besides those other two matches, I don't think anything gets past like a, if I was to do a star rating, more than two. So I'll, I'll give this show the <laughs> the first wrestling show you and I do together. I'm going to the well. I'm doing a four on ten. <laughs> four, huh? I'll be a little more generous. And I'm going to be more generous because I think this event has the best of WCW and the worst of WCW. And you know what? When you have the best of WCW here, you can do far worse. I think that Arn Anderson flair match is tremendous. I am here to say that I don't think the two of us will see in this particular era a better match that flair is in. Maybe a more emotional match, but not a better match. We'll have to see as we go. But And also that Flying Brian John B. Bad match was much better than I was expecting. I, was, I remember being bored by that match, but here as I was taking notes, I was actually captivated by it to the point where I was pausing it so I could see everything as I was taking notes. But... Yeah, the bad here, oh God, is really bad. So I I still think both those matches need to be seen. So I'll go five. It's one that, you know, if you want to see a good wrestling clinic, watch that Arn Anderson-Rick Flair match. If you want to see an exciting match, watch that Flyin' Brian-Johnny B. Bad match. But I wouldn't say this is one that you it's worth watching the entire thing. <laughs> but yeah, so with that being said, why don't you talk about what we're going to be talking about next week? So next week, we are going to be doing WWF's equivalent pay-per-view, uh, In Your House 3. We're not starting with the first In Your House, because that took place before Fall Brawl. But it was it's also weird at a time where WWF didn't do a pay-per-view every single month. You know, nowadays, I'm so used to that, where it feels like there's multiple pay-per-views a month. But, you know, I've always liked the In Your House concept. I think it's a clever way to get more shows but don't make them as big as your key four so they those shows still matter and feel more important but the wwf in 1995 was very different than wcw in 1995 so i'm really excited to talk about those those parallels definitely all right favorite match least favorite match on this card uh favorite match i'll go flair and anderson really i thought you said that the johnny b bad match was your favorite oh yeah you're right i'm sorry I think the main event has to be the worst. Uh, I, I, because the, the Cobra match was mercifully short. And I think when your main event stinks up the joint, I have to weigh that considerably more. Okay. Well, I have two different ones than you. I do have Flair and Anderson as my highlight. And I have, as my low point of the show, Harlem Heat and Dick Slater and Bunkhouse Buck. I just think when you have matches that have no heat... And there's just no storyline, There's except for the managers, obviously, but the guys fighting each other in the ring. Like, there was just nothing there that really made me give a shit about those characters. And that was 16 minutes, which is way too long for a match like that. Yeah, that's, that's my dud. 
of this pay-per-view. It was just, it was really bad. But like you said, Greg Pittman and Cobra was very short. So I, I there's no way I can give that a dud. But yeah, my dud is uh, definitely Harlem Heat and uh, Bunkhouse Buck and Dirty Dick Slater. All right, so next week we will cover In Your House 3, Triple Threat. So much to talk about when it comes to 95 WWF. Wow. It's going to be curious going through this, Matt. And plus, we have lots of other things to talk about next week when it comes to Bischoff. And he's starting to take shots at the WWF around this time. I'm definitely looking forward to next week. But let us know what you think. You know, this is our very first true version of what this show will consist of. Give us some feedback. What do you think? Are you... Are you liking this concept? Is there things that we could do to, to change it up? What are your favorite matches of this card? What are your favorite matches of 95? What are your favorite matches, period? Let us know in the Facebook post and anywhere else. You know, we, we definitely check our messages all the time, me and Matt do. This is a concept that we have been thinking about forever, and uh, we're very, very excited to go into this. There's a hell of a lot more shows to cover. We're going to see the birth of Stone Cold Steve Austin. We're going to see Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart, the way that feud develops and the way that cultivates. And it's really going to be fun to go through this, man. I, I appreciate you uh, going on this journey with me. Yeah, I'm excited. And until next week, when we cover In Your House 3, Triple Threat, we'll see you at the matches. <laughs>